One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. 49ers at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, October 16th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Both teams are in the bottom five in pass attempts per game. Both teams average under 60 offensive plays per game. There is very little to get excited about from a fantasy perspective here, considering the low expected volume and low game total. San Francisco pieces always carry high theoretical upside due to unreal per-touch efficiency, but the volume keeps the floors on the ground. The ceiling is the roof. Two of the bottom three teams in pass rate over expectation through five weeks. Six impact defensive players missed practice for the 49ers on Wednesday, including Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead, Javon Kinlaw, Manuel Mosley, and Jimmy Ward. Offensive tackle Trent Williams also missed practice. Kyle Pitts returned to a limited practice on Wednesday after missing last week's game. How San Francisco will try to win. Everything starts with the defense in San Francisco, which makes sense when your unit has allowed the fewest yards per drive, fewest points per drive, and lowest drive success rate, all by significant margins. Consider this. Their 1.45 points per drive value on offense ranks 30th in the league, and they still rank 6th in net points per drive. They have paired that stalwart defense with a slow pace of play on offense to mask the inefficiencies of their quarterback, leading to a 22nd ranked 59.8 offensive plays per game. Injuries have also played a part in their 2022 path after the team lost its starting running back and starting quarterback within the first 17 offensive plays in Week 1 and Week 2, respectively. Speaking of the inefficiencies of their quarterback, here are some of Jimmy Garoppolo's ranks in various efficiency metrics so far this year. 33rd in clean pocket completion percentage, 29th in true completion percentage, 24th in accuracy rating, 21st in QBR, 32nd in completion percentage versus zone coverages, and 28th in expected fantasy points per game. Yikes. Trey Lance might not have been it for the 49ers this season, but Jimmy Garoppolo definitely wasn't it. Yet the 49ers find themselves atop the NFC West with a record of 3-2 after losing to the Bears in the Week 1 Waterworks game with Trey Lance at quarterback and losing to the Broncos on the road at Mile High by a score of 11-10 in Week 3. The running back situation has developed into an alpha role that is more beta in snap rate, with Jeff Wilson Jr. leading the way in weekly snap rate and workload after significant injuries to both Elijah Mitchell and Tyrion Davis-Price. That said, Wilson has played a whopping five more offensive snaps than fullback Kyle Juszczyk over the previous four games, while Juszczyk has a combined 10 running back opportunities over five games. That should help to explain the emphasis on heavy offensive alignments from this team, a team that plays from 11 personnel at the lowest rate in the league. All of that to say, even though Jeff Wilson is the unquestioned lead back in San Francisco, we can't really expect substantially more than 18 running back opportunities he has averaged over his four starts this year. The matchup on the ground yields a well above average 4.64 net adjusted line yards metric against an opponent largely considered a run funnel defense. Tevin Coleman has rejoined the fray in San Francisco, hilariously sniping two touchdowns on 19 offensive snaps in week five, which led to his ultimate signing back to the active roster on Wednesday of this week. That could serve to lessen the theoretical upside of Wilson after the alpha back had this backfield virtually to himself over the previous two weeks. Rookie Jordan Mason and Tevin Coleman combined for only six offensive snaps through weeks three and four. Finally, all backs in San Francisco's backfield should be largely thought of as yardage and touchdown backs considering the team has targeted the position only 19 times through five weeks 
which is tied for the Bears for the third fewest in the league. The 49ers attempt only 27.6 passes per game through five weeks, which ranks 28th in the league and also makes a good deal of sense considering the composition of their team. With that consideration understood, there are very few teams that can push San Francisco into increased pass volume, and Atlanta likely isn't one of them. That should leave Jimmy Garoppolo in his standard range of 28 to 30 pass attempts, similar to his range in all three starts thus far. What's gross is the fact that he has yet to complete more than 18 passes in a game this season. The counter to the Jimmy G is inefficient argument is the insane efficiency of the 49ers pass catchers, highlighted by the unreal and likely unsustainable 14.47 yards per completion value over the previous two weeks. All of George Kittle, Debo Samuel, and Brandon Ayuk are continually towards the top of the league in yards after the catch per reception and other efficiency metrics, which highlights the dynamism and upside generating scheme. Basically, each of these pass catchers has a low floor due to the low overall pass volume of the offense, but they all carry equally high ceilings due to the unreal per-touch efficiency. Debo will also likely mix in a handful of rush attempts. Situational wide receivers Jawan Jennings and Ray Ray McLeod III and pass-blocking tight ends Charlie Warner and Ross Dwelly can be left out of fantasy consideration altogether. How Atlanta will try to win It seems as if Atlanta is trying to win games by using their top playmakers as little as possible. Although that sounds like satire, it carries more truth than we would like through five weeks. Head coach and offensive play caller Arthur Smith has had some head-scratching moments during his short tenure in Atlanta, most notably feeding second-year blocking tight end Parker Hesse more snaps than Kyle Pitts over the previous two contests in which both were healthy, holding electric rookie wide receiver Drake London to a 67% snap rate and low route participation rate in a game Kyle Pitts missed and running a four-way backfield split in a game Corderell Patterson missed. It's safe to say that Smith views the identity of his team through a defense-first lens, likely due to one of the top defensive coordinators in the league, Dean Pease. The Falcons run a league-average pace of play and hold the league's second-lowest pass rate over expectation on offense, which combines to allow only 59.4 offensive plays per game thus far. All of that can be summed up with one statement. The Falcons seem less concerned with scoring the football in every possession than they do with fighting a field position and ball control battle. Corderell Patterson was placed on IR this past week following a procedure on his knee. The backfield usage in the first game following his absence was confusing to say the least, as the team utilized a rotation of three running backs and one fullback throughout the game. Rookie fifth-round running back Tyler Algier led the way with 13 running back opportunities, all carries, on a 59% snap rate followed by fullback Keith Smith and plotters Avery Williams and Caleb Huntley. Furthering the confusion with this backfield and their usage is the 14 total running back targets this year, fewest in the league, when the primary running back through four games was the dynamic Corderell Patterson. As such, Falcons running backs should be considered yardage and touchdown backs in a difficult matchup with a 49ers team allowing the lowest yards per running back carry in the league, 2.97. The matchup yields an average 4.36 net adjusted line yards metric in what should be considered a strength-on-strength matchup in the trenches. Volume on this offense is an absolute rarity. The Falcons have rotated skill position players more than any other team this season, with five wide receivers, four running backs, and three tight ends seeing regular snaps. Rookie wide receiver Drake London holds a ridiculous 39% targets per route run and 33.3% team target market share but has returned only 12.3 expected fantasy points per game, which ranks 33rd in the league. Kyle Pitts carries a ridiculous 30.1% targets per route run and a modest 23.7% team target market share, but only 9.9 expected fantasy points per game value. 
I wanted to use those stats to highlight how predictable this pass offense has been with very little forward-thinking design. Now consider the fact that the Falcons average only 24.6 pass attempts per game, which is more than just the Bears, and we're left scratching our heads on how an offense with so much talent can look so daft. Expect similar usage here with Olamide Zacchaeus, Cotterell Hodge, Brian Edwards, Demir Bird, Parker Hesse, and Anthony Ferkser all seeing snaps behind the clear leads of the offense in Drake London and Kyle Pitts. Likeliest Game Flow This could be one of the slowest and most run-heavy games of the year considering the identities of each team involved. Whereas the 49ers make up for the shortcomings in volume with efficiency, the Falcons are largely an unknown. The defensive injuries in San Francisco are likely to contribute to the game staying closer throughout, which should allow each team the opportunity to maintain relatively muted aggression. Considering the fact that games involving the Falcons have been decided by a combined 18 points over five weeks, it's fair to say that they allow their opponents to dictate the flow and environment. Said another way, the Falcons rarely approach offensive possessions through the lens of trying to score the most points each time they have the ball, and instead play the game flow and field position game. That leaves the chances of this game environment taking off rather low. Expect a trenches game as the percentage solution here. Patriots at Browns, kickoff Sunday, October 16th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. An interesting matchup of a pair of two and three teams who got their records in very different ways. Both teams are likely to skew very run heavy, and both defenses rank bottom five in the NFL in rush defense DVOA. New England's quarterback situation is worth monitoring and may have some impact on their approach. The Browns have lost three games by a combined six points all blown leads in the fourth quarter. How New England will try to win. Bailey Zappi has acquitted himself nicely over the last two weeks in relief of the injured Mac Jones and Brian Hoyer. Bill Belichick is reluctant to divulge any information on the status of Jones heading into this matchup with the Browns, but it would be shocking if he played based on the reports of the injury when it first occurred. While some media members are trying to stir up some QB controversy for the Patriots, the reality is that Zappi has benefited from a Packers team that didn't step on the gas and force him to play from behind, and then a Lions team that laid a complete egg and didn't force the Patriots to have to force the issue at all last week. Zappi has played well relative to expectations, no doubt, but it will be interesting to see if he can keep it up on the road against a team that has consistently controlled game flow and been efficient on offense. The Browns' defense is the shining light for the Patriots in this matchup. After a couple of solid seasons, the Browns now have a bottom three defensive unit in most metrics and have specifically been bad against the run where they rank dead last in both PFF grade and DVOA. The loss of Damian Harris hurts the ability of the Patriots to fully lean into their run game, but they will certainly lean heavily on Ramondre Stevenson in this spot and should move the ball efficiently and keep Zappi in positive down and distance situations behind their sixth ranked run blocking unit up front. Early down runs that move the chains or set up manageable third and short situations will be the recipe for the Patriots here, with short area passing using hitches and slants as a means of exploiting a Browns coverage unit that plays primarily zone concepts and blitzes at a bottom 10 rate in the league. How Cleveland will try to win. The Browns entered the season with moderate expectations due to the 11-game suspension of franchise QB and superstar Deshaun Watson. Their performance on the field has actually been incredibly impressive relative to what many expected, although they have blown some chances and could realistically be 5-0 right now. They lost by two on a missed field goal at the end of last week's game against the Chargers, this after they blew a two-touchdown lead to the Jets in the final two minutes of Week 2, and blew a fourth-quarter lead to the Falcons in a game in which Marcus Mariota completed only seven passes. 
Most of the blame goes to a defense that ranks 30th in DVOA. While the offense has overachieved and is currently the fourth-ranked unit in the league behind a dominant running game and Jacoby Brissett playing the best football of his career. Heavy lies the crown, as many will look at the Browns' record and close losses and apply a lot of blame to head coach Kevin Stefanski. In reality, Stefanski has done an amazing job getting the most out of Brissett and designing a terrific offense that is moving the ball consistently and has scored 26 or more points in four or five games this season. In this matchup, the Browns face a Patriots defense that has been gashed by the run this season and will allow the Browns to do what they do best. The Browns rank 29th in pass rate over expectation, and that trend should continue in this matchup. Through the air, the Browns should use a heavy dose of play-action passing and may mix in some screens to their running backs and tight ends against a Patriots team that blitzes on 30% of their snaps, the 7th highest rate in the NFL. The Patriots play man coverage at the 2nd highest rate in the league, which should mean the opportunity for the Browns to take some deep shots and hit crossing routes off play action, especially since the Browns' offensive line ranks as PFF's number two graded pass blocking unit and should provide plenty of time for Bursett. Overall, we can expect the usual Browns' offensive approach in this game with high volume and efficiency in the running game and the chance for some explosive plays through the air as the Patriots are forced to devote more resources to stopping the run. Likeliest Game Flow Both of these teams are going to run the ball often although their likely efficiency in doing so should keep this game moving much more than you would usually expect in a game between two run-heavy offenses. The Patriots struggled in the red zone last week against a bad Lions defense, settling for five field goals, and it wouldn't be surprising to see the same thing this week as they play conservatively with Zappi under center, moving the ball becomes much harder as you get closer to the end zone and the field shrinks. On the other side, the Browns have been pretty efficient scoring all season and are more likely to throw the ball if necessary, and also have more weapons to attack with within the red zone, this makes it likely that this game stays close as both teams are able to put together scoring drives with the advantage to the Browns due to the higher likelihood of explosive plays and those drives likely ending in touchdowns more often than the Patriots, who may once again be keeping their kicker busy. Jets at Packers. Kickoff Sunday, October 16th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45. Game Overview by Pappy. This is a matchup of the fastest and slowest paced teams. The Packers' play calling is highly game flow dependent. Both running games are set up for success. Brees Hall is taking over the Jets' backfield and is mispriced for his role and talent. How New York will try to win. The 3 and 2 Jets. Is that a typo? Nope, just checked. The Jets are really 3 and 2. They'll let anyone have a winning record these days. Unfortunately for Robert Sala's Jets, their record is deceptive, having lost decidedly to the Bengals and Ravens, and recording victories against the Browns in an epic collapse, the Steelers, who played the first half with Mitch Trubisky, and the Dolphins, with their third-string QB. The Jets' first two wins were by a combined five points, before finally getting a win going away against the Dolphins using Skyler Days of Our Lives Thompson at QB. The Jets are lucky to be 3-2, and two, but if you ask Robert Sala, they've been punching people in the mouth. One thing Solid does appear to have figured out is that Zach Wilson isn't very good at football. The Jets want to run the ball regardless of who is playing QB, but it's clear they are more willing to open things up with Joe Flacco. The Jets called run-pass splits of 17-59, 20-44, and 20-52 in their first three games. In the past two games with Wilson, the same splits have been 29-36 and 33-21. The game flow has something to do with those numbers, but the change at QB more fully explains the switch in offensive philosophy. The Jets are going to be a run-heavy team with Wilson under center, especially if they can keep the game within two scores. The Jets have played the fastest overall pace in the league to start the year, 
Is that a typo? Nope, just checked. The Jets are really playing at the fastest pace in the NFL. They'll let anyone play fast these days. The Jets are living up to their name and flying to the line of scrimmage, playing in the top 10 pace in all situations. In particular, it stands out how fast they're playing when ahead, second in total pace, which shows the Jets are going to play with tempo regardless of the score. The Packers have been solid against the pass, 11th in DVOA, but trampled on the ground, 30th in DVOA. The Packers' secondary is led by Jair Alexander, who once again holds a top 25 position grade per PFF. The rest of the secondary is more solid than spectacular, but there is no reason to attack the relative strength of a defense while they grade out so poorly against the run. The Packers present a run-funnel defense that forces teams to pass by taking a lead. Salah is hoping to keep things close and hide Zach Wilson. Expect a mouth-punching game plan from the Jets for as long as possible, with a chance they stay run-heavy even down by multiple scores. How Green Bay will try to win the 3-2 Packers come into Week 6 off a bad loss as a large favorite against the upstart Giants. Week 5 felt like the type of game the Packers routinely won during Aaron Rodgers' tenure. At the risk of sounding like a boomer, you have to win the games you're supposed to win. While that saying is cliche, it's accurate, and good QBs consistently push their teams over the top against weaker competition. Maybe the Giants are underrated, but the Packers were showing chinks in their armor before last week. They barely beat the Bailey Zappi-led Patriots in Week 4, 27-24, just squeaked by the receiverless Bucks in Week 3, 14-12, and were easily handled, 7-23, by the healthy Vikings in Week 1. Their only confident win, 27-10, came against Matt, can I get a clue, Eberflus, and the hapless Chicago offense in Week 2. As good as Aaron Rodgers still is, these Packers are not as strong as they've been in past years. The Jets' defense can be had through the air, 23rd in DVOA, and on the ground, 19th in DVOA. The Packers have maintained their deliberate pass-leaning offense that we've seen for many of the Aaron Rodgers years, and there is nothing in this matchup that should cause them to deviate from their preferred approach. However, the Packers' play calling is highly influenced by game flow. Their run-pass splits are 34-18, 25-38, 35-25, 35-35, and 39-20. The two games where the Packers threw twice as much as they ran were both losses. Their only confident win looks like a box score you could have seen during the Cold War. Their two balanced games were determined by three points or less. The Packers are going to play balanced when it's close, throw when they're behind, and run when they're ahead, making their game environments very dependent on the scoreboard. Aaron Rodgers has bucked the league trend of playing with tempo for years, instead preferring to use the play clock to help read the defense. While the NFL has sped up, Rodgers has slowed down, and the Packers play at the slowest overall pace in the league. Rodgers uses the play clock for his cadence and to gain information about the defense. Those are important parts of his game, and he isn't willing to adjust even when the Packers are losing, keeping them in the bottom five in pace in all situations. Fortunately for Green Bay, Rodgers is elite, so they are rarely losing by more than one score. Expect the Packers to play at their typical slow pace, relying on efficiency over volume and attacking Salah's cover three underneath. Likeliest Game Flow This game has been hovering around the same total, 46, since it opened. The Packers are touchdown favorites and expected to do most of the scoring, sporting one of the higher team totals on the slate. The Jets' defense has been beatable through the air and on the ground, which sets up perfectly for the Packers to attack with their balanced style. These Packers might not be as good as previous renditions, but they are still a strong team, and the Jets' 3-2 record is a mirage. The most likely game flow? 
has the Packers taking an early lead, with the Jets staying run-heavy too long before finally abandoning the ground game in a last-ditch effort to catch up late. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Jaguars at Colts. Kickoff Sunday, October 16th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42. Game Overview by Hilo. Jonathan Taylor missed practice on Wednesday after missing Week 5, which is typically not a good sign for a return to game action. Naeem Hines was limited in practice Wednesday as he works his way through the league's five-step concussion protocol. The Colts last played on Thursday, so the additional three days is a good sign for Hines' potential to return in time for Week 6. Colts linebacker Shaquille Leonard has had a tough go this season, returning for only 30% of the snaps in Week 4 before suffering a scary head-neck-back injury that sidelined him once again. He is currently listed as DNP on Wednesday with concussion, nose, and back injuries. Jacksonville ranks third in net points per drive, while Indianapolis ranks 31st. The Jaguars hold the league's sixth-fastest first-half pace of play and 31st-ranked pace of play with a lead of seven or more points, indicating an unwillingness to try and put games away and instead an attempt to inch towards a win. The Colts rank dead last in points per game at 13.8, just somewhat hilarious considering the state of Chicago, Denver, Pittsburgh, and Houston, to name a few. Both teams are tied in adjusted line yards on offense at 3.8, which ranks 30th in the league ahead of only Washington. Jacksonville beat Indianapolis 24-0 in their first meeting in Week 3. Playing the same divisional opponent twice within a month is silly, NFL. Do better. How Jacksonville will try to win. The Jaguars are attacking games in the first half and running with their tail between their legs in the second half and or with a lead this season, trying to limp to victory. That has bitten them twice already this season in losses to the Eagles and Texans. By the numbers, the Jaguars have been a very balanced offense this year, with an expected pass rate almost exactly matching their actual pass rate through five weeks. Their true pass rate of 57.89% ranks 20th in the league while their ninth ranked values in both offensive and defensive points per drive has them at third overall in net points per drive. Second-year quarterback Trevor Lawrence has appeared capable this season, with the offensive scheme not doing him any favors. His 7.8 intended air yards per pass attempt ranks 16th in the league, while his 3.5 completed air yards per pass attempt ranks 19th. That said, the team has attempted only 31 passes from either RPO or play action, instead running a more straight-up offense. Things don't get any rosier through their run game. One that is running behind an offensive line blocking to only 3.8 adjusted line yards, ranked 30th in power success rate, and ranks dead last in stuffed rate. Their backs are exceeding early expectations, combining to run for 4.45 running back yards per carry, which likely signals a regression to the mean at some point this year, particularly considering the team runs a relatively straightforward offense in scheme and design. James Robinson surprised most by not only making it back from a torn Achilles, but exhibiting above-average burst and efficiency metrics over the first three games of the year. That has been a different story over the last two games, as he has simultaneously seen his efficiency decline and ceded more snaps and opportunities to Travis Etienne. Expect some form of committee here, with recent trends indicating a 60-40 split in favor of Etienne. Consider this. Robinson averaged 20 running back opportunities over the first three weeks and has since been held to an average of 10 or fewer over the previous two weeks. One of those games came against the stout defense of the Eagles, while one came against the relative sieve of the Texans, indicating what should be a changing of the guard in Jacksonville. 
The Jaguars run primarily a straight-up 11-personnel base offense with almost zero utilization of 21 personnel and below-average rates of 12 personnel, meaning Christian Kirk, Marvin Jones, and Zay Jones should all be expected to play the majority of the offensive snaps in a standard week. Kirk leads the team with a 22.5% team target market share and 26.7% targets per route run, followed by 21.3% and 25.8% from Zay Jones in those two metrics, respectively. Only Marvin Jones holds an ADOT deeper than league average at 14.3 to pair with a 17.3% team target market share and 20.4% targets per route run rate. In all, there's nothing really here to separate one from the other two, with all three falling within 30 to 39 total targets this year. Each of the three has seen exactly one game of double-digit targets through five weeks. Newcomer tight end Evan Ingram joins the fray with one game of double-digit targets as well on a 20.2% targets per route run rate. In all, the team lands right at league average at 36.2 pass attempts per game that operates in a relatively spread nature amongst the top four pass catchers. How Indianapolis will try to win. Frank Reich's Colts have looked lost this season, ranking dead last in the NFL in points per drive and 31st in net points per drive measure of the effectiveness of both offense and defense. Their 40% red zone touchdown rate is tied for 28th in the league, ahead of only the Seahawks and Broncos. Quarterback Matt Ryan's 6.3 intended air yards per pass attempt ranks 29th in the league of qualified passers. Their offensive line is blocking to a rancid 3.80 adjusted line yards, which exactly matches the 3.80 running back yards per carry. Not great, Bob. And while their defense ranks second in DVOA against the run and 21st in DVOA against the pass, and the fact that they have allowed only 18.8 points per game, which ranks 10th in the league, the increased pressure it has faced due to the offense's inability to move the ball and score points has led to a 17th-ranked defensive drive success rate allowed. Even through all of that, the Colts rank 12th in average time of possession this season at 30 minutes and 29 seconds per game. The Colts somewhat inexplicably abandoned heavy utilization of 12 personnel after Naeem Hines left Week 5's contest, instead electing for elevated rates of 11 personnel. Whether or not that is a signal of what to expect moving forward, or simply a case of them playing with their third-string running back remains to be seen, but it was interesting nonetheless. The combination of the injury to Jonathan Taylor and a poorly performing offensive line in run-blocking metrics is a tough pill to swallow for a team that has derived its identity through its run game over the previous two seasons. We don't have a ton to go off of from last Thursday's game regarding how the team would handle the absence of Taylor, but Naeem Hines played every offensive snap prior to departing, which was all of three offensive snaps, to be fair. We now have additional variables to work through with the concussion sustained by Hines last week, meaning the workload of this backfield is about as uncertain as can be considering Taylor is working his way back from an ankle injury and Hines recently suffered a concussion. The matchup on the ground yields a well-below-average 3.91 net adjusted line yards metric against the Jacksonville defense allowing just 4.19 yards per running back carry. It feels as if the field continues to value Michael Pittman as a true alpha in this league, but the truth of the matter is that his 22.9% team target market share ranks 27th, while his targets per route run rate is an embarrassing 22.4%, which ranks 51st in the league amongst qualified wide receivers. His low 6.6 ADOT has led to only 238 air yards through five games, which ranks 58th in the league. If we subscribe to the idea that targets are earned, it stands to reason that Pittman is not earning his targets at a truly elite rate at this point in his career. I mentioned the increased 11 personnel rates a week ago with a battered run game, but the percentage solution for this offense is to operate about league average rates of personnel groupings, which means about 20% 12 personnel and about 70% 11 personnel. 
Rookie wide receiver Alec Pierce has operated as the wide receiver three on this team when healthy this year, which typically keeps him in the 50-60% to 60% snap range. To emphasize a previous point, Alec Pierce holds a 23.9% targets per route run rate and a healthy 11.3 ADOT. Go back through and reread how that compares to Michael Pittman real quick. Perennial breakout candidate Paris Campbell has worked his way up to the true wide receiver two on this team, but his 8.9% targets per route run rate is laughably low to match his low 5.6 ADOT. The tight end stable of Mo Ali Cox, Kylan Granson, and Jelani Woods has provided one game amongst the three with a snap rate of 70% or more through five games. Likeliest game flow. If you would have told me before the season that Jacksonville would rank third in net points per drive and Indianapolis would rank 31st heading into week six, I would have called you a liar. But that is exactly where these two teams are at. And yet both teams are currently looking up at the three and two Titans in the AFC South standings. The relative strength of each of these teams is their defense, and the virtual inability of the Colts to score means it's likely as this one turns into a gross divisional slugfest. Furthering that notion is a Jaguars team that retreats into its shell when playing with a lead, which should serve to keep this game close and grindy. The marquee matchup between the league's lowest scoring offense and the league's 15th ranked offense in points per game shouldn't get us overly excited about attacking this one, and the underlying metrics back that up. The earlier game overview section was robust for a reason, in that it highlights a very clear likeliest path for this game. Vikings at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, October 16th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45 and a half. Game overview by Hilo. Minnesota ranks 7th in pass rate over expectation, PROE. While the Dolphins have been steadily declining over the previous three weeks since their shootout with the Ravens, particularly because they have been playing with their number two and number three quarterbacks. Miami head coach Mike McDaniel has said that the team is preparing to start rookie quarterback Skylar Thompson, regardless of the status of Teddy Bridgewater, which is a great coaching move considering the team now gets a full week of preparation with their quarterback. Raheem Mostert missed practice to start the week with a knee injury. There was no indication as to when the injury happened, considering he rattled off 122 yards and a score on 19 touches last week. Kirk Cousins has historically struggled under pressure. The Dolphins blitz at an above-average rate, but have struggled to hit home with the third-lowest pressure rate in the league. The Vikings rank 8th in first-half pace of play, while the Dolphins rank 22nd. How Minnesota will try to win. The lofty PROE, 7th, and elevated pass rates, 53.41%, from Minnesota make good on the promise by Kevin O'Connell coming into the season. So too does the increased emphasis on third-year and budding star wide receiver Justin Jefferson, who is being developed into a Cooper Cup-like receiver capable of beating any coverages thrown at him. That said, Jefferson is not yet on Cup's level, with a 27.8% targets per route run rate that falls miles below. There is also nothing pointing to the run game as a relative weakness here, with the offensive line blocking to an above-average 4.85 net-adjusted line yards metric, also ranking in the top five in power success rate and open field yards created. We haven't seen many breakaway runs from Dalvin Cook and Alexander Madison, which is more of a reflection of those two than the run game or scheme. Most importantly, the Vikings play fast and actively try to score points with each possession. After averaging a 73% snap rate starting the season, Dalvin Cook has not played over 63% of the offensive snaps over the past three weeks. That has made this backfield more of a 60-40 split with increased reliance on 1B back Alexander Madison. Cook's 15.1 expected fantasy points per game rank only 15th in the league this year, further highlighting the shift in mindset with these two. Furthermore, Cook's 15 targets ranks only 24th at the position this year. 
Still, they remain on pace to match his aerial production over the previous four seasons in Minnesota, but are underwhelming, given what we heard heading into the year that his pass game role would grow under O'Connell. Basically, Dalvin's rushes are decreasing while his pass game role remains stagnant. The matchup on the ground yields an average 4.305 net adjusted line yards metric against a largely pass-funnel Miami defense, 7th in DVOA against the run and 32nd in DVOA against the pass. Justin Jefferson's 30.2% team target market share highlights how valuable he is to this offense and how elite he is at beating both man and zone coverages. He should see an increased rate of man coverage this week, with the Dolphins currently third in the league in man coverage rates. Good luck with that plan. Furthermore, the Dolphins are blitzing at above average rates, but have generated pressure at the third lowest rate in the league, which could spell trouble against Kirk Cousins and his ability to pick apart an opposing defense when afforded a clean pocket. Adam Thielen continues to play virtually every snap and run a route on virtually every dropback, currently in a route at a 99% clip. His modest 19.2% target rate and gross 17.8% targets per route run rate indicate a something's-got-to-give situation. Either he is washed and past his prime, possible yet unlikely considering his high snap rate and route participation rates, or we should see some regression to the mean at some point. A matchup against heavier man coverage rates might not be when it happens, but something is going to give here soon. K.J. Osborne continues to operate as the clear wide receiver three and has a solid win rate against man coverage this year. The heavy emphasis on 11 personnel has meant his snap rate has routinely been in the 75% plus range, something that should remain rather sticky moving forward. Finally, Irv Smith is still splitting time with Johnny Munt, capping his ceiling in the process. How Miami will try to win Miami has continued a relative downtrend in aggression since their Week 2 shootout with the Ravens, and their head coach has mentioned as much in his press conferences. Mike McDaniel alluded to the fact that he has never been a pass-heavy game planner in the past and intended to work in higher rates of rushing plays moving forward, which has been somewhat amplified by the fact that the team will now be starting their third-string quarterback this week, rookie Skylar Thompson. When we look at their overall pass rates through five weeks broken down by game, we find that three of five games actually check in with pass rates below league average, one just above league average, and the outlier game with the Ravens. Week 5 marked their second lowest overall pass rate of the season at 56.7%, with 62.7% in Week 4, 54.1% in Week 3, 73.5% in Week 2, and 58.9% in Week 1. It, at minimum, appears likely that McDaniel is attempting to re-emphasize his outside zone run scheme in the immediate future. That running game could look a bit different this week with Mostert missing the week's first practice, particularly considering the fact that he has emerged as the clear lead back in this backfield. After starting the season in a strict timeshare with Chase Edmonds, Mostert has handled 72% and 69% snap rates over the previous two games, leading to running back opportunity counts of 18 and 21, respectively. Edmonds combined for only 11 total running back opportunities in those two games. The matchup on the ground yields an above-average 4.52 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Vikings defense holding their opposition to 4.25 yards per running back carry through five weeks. The underlying metrics indicate the Vikings are outperforming against the run currently, which is a situation to monitor moving forward. Keep an eye on Mostert's level of participation in practice on Thursday and Friday as it could signal potential changes to both the overall offensive game plan and the running back pecking order in Miami. Tyree Kill, 30.7% target share and elite 35% targets per route run rate, and Jalen Waddell, 23.3% target share and above average 26.4% targets per route run rate, 
combined to siphon 54% of the team's available targets this year, which makes sense considering their elite athleticism and route-running acumen. Most interestingly, Trent Sherfield played over $22 million man Cedric Wilson last week after Wilson missed Week 4's contest. That's interesting considering Wilson was a full participant in practice throughout the week heading into Week 5. Either way, Wilson, 14.3% targets per route run, and Sherfield, 13.5% targets per route run, simply don't command enough of the offense to sustain viability moving forward. As we've covered in this space previously, primary blocking tight end Durham Smythe has played over pass-catching tight end Mike Gusecki handily all season, with the former thoroughly outsnapping the latter 178-150 to 150 this season. Minnesota's low blitz rate and heavy zone defense should provide ample room underneath for Hill and Waddle to work, who each rank in the top 12 in PFF's receiving grades versus zone coverages this year. Most notably, Hill has commanded a whopping 33 targets against zone coverage this year, which ranks third in the league behind only Cooper Cup and Marquise Brown. Likeliest Game Flow All the pieces are present to turn this game into a lofty shootout, with the uncertainty surrounding a third-string rookie quarterback in Miami and the uncertainty surrounding Miami's backfield likely holding the game total in check. That said, everything Miami does well, outside zone run scheme and elite pass catchers against zone coverage, lines up well with what they should see this week from Minnesota, plus the fact that Miami is probably the team least reliant on quarterback play considering their offensive pieces and head coach and offensive play caller. I would tentatively guess that the overall pass rate depends more on the health of Raheem Mostert than it does on their quarterback situation. On the other side of that coin, this is still a rookie 7th round quarterback, and Kirk Cousins has historically been poor under pressure. The heightened blitz rates the Dolphins are sure to throw at him could disrupt the Vikings enough to mute the upside. Those three variables could come together to mute the overall upside here, making this game appear ugly on the surface. That gives this game environment a rather wide range of potential outcomes, meaning we should be looking to attack it at low ownership and largely stay away at high ownership. Bengals at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, October 16th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 43. Game Overview by Hilo. The New Orleans injury report currently looks like a scene from Kill Bill. There's blood everywhere. All of Michael Thomas, foot, Jarvis Landry, ankle, Chris Olave, concussion, Marshawn Lattimore, abdomen, and return man-slash-depth-wide receiver Deontay Hardy did not practice on Wednesday, while Jameis Winston managed a limited session as he works his way back from multiple injuries. The Bengals have held opponents to the eighth-fewest points per game on the backs of the second-best points allowed per drive, the second-best drive success rate allowed, and the tenth-fewest yards per drive allowed. Hashtag this is a Lou Anarumo tweet. These two teams combined to average 32.56 seconds per play. Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins missed practice to start the week after failing to make it through Week 5's game with an ankle injury. How Cincinnati will try to win. The Bengals average 69.8 offensive plays per game. That stat doesn't mean much by itself because there are many different ways to get to a high number of plays per game. We primarily see it done one of two ways. Either a team's defense is so poor that their offense gets the ball back faster, Detroit is a good example, where a team's defense forces shorter drives and gives the ball back to their offense faster. Cincinnati is firmly entrenched in the latter example. So far this season, the Bengals hold the league's second-best drive success rate allowed, second-best points allowed per drive, and 10th-fewest yards allowed per drive. That means that even though they rank in the middle of the league in offensive drive success rate, 15th, their net drive success rate value ranks second overall, behind only Buffalo and ahead of Philadelphia, Cleveland, and Green Bay. Furthermore, their three losses have come through a combined eight total points, 
meaning this team is three bounces of the football away from being 5-0, and it's primarily due to their defense. Joe Mixon has played 66% or more of the offensive snaps in every week so far this year, averaging a 73.6% snap rate on the season. He ranks as the number one running back in expected fantasy points per game, with averages of 19.2 rush attempts and 5.4 targets per week. That said, his 3.7 yards per touch value ranks 54th, and his true yards per carry value ranks 65th. Cincinnati's offensive line is blocking to a 22nd ranked 4.23 adjusted line yards value, with only 3.35 running back yards per carry, indicating a situation that should regress to the mean at some point. Mixon's 20 red zone opportunities rank second amongst running backs to only Kareem Hunt, and his zero touchdowns on seven carries inside the five rates as the worst red zone efficiency in the league. Something has got to give at some point for Mixon. It just might not be this week against the Saints defense, allowing just 20.2 fantasy points per game to opposing backfields on the back of the league's top-ranked power run success rate. The pure rushing matchup yields an average 4.34 net adjusted line yards metric. Expect Samaje Pirine to continue in a strict change of pace role, assuming he is healthy enough to play after being limited to start the week with an abdomen injury. Injuries could force the Bengals' pass game into one-dimensionality with T. Higgins battling an ankle injury and starting tight end Hayden Hurst limited by a groin injury. As things currently stand, I would tentatively expect Higgins to miss this week while Hurst plays. Should that be the case, we're likely to see Mike Thomas enter the starting lineup opposite Jamar Chase. We could also see a heavier emphasis on 11 personnel similar to what we saw last week after Higgins left the game. Starting slot-wide receiver Tyler Boyd played all but two offensive snaps, his first time over an 81% snap rate all year. The other variable here is the status of Saints corner Marshawn Lattimore, who missed practice to start the week with an abdomen injury. That's important for a couple of reasons, primarily due to the defensive tendency shown by the Saints this year. Their 4-2-5 base nickel defense has adjusted to the opponent heavily this year mixing and matching zone and man coverages to take away their opponent's best chances of moving the football. Considering the injuries on each side and the relative weakness of the Bengals' rush offense, it stands to reason that we see the Saints settle into heavier rates of cover 2 and cover 3 defensive alignments, which should benefit the short area passing game, but limit the splash play potential of the Bengals. That sets up well for Tyler Boyd, Hayden Hurst, and Joe Mixon to see a slight uptick in aerial usage while simultaneously muting the per-touch upside of all parties. How New Orleans will try to win. This one is a bit tricky as a good deal of the Saints' offensive game plan is likely to revolve around who can actually play. Michael Thomas hasn't played since week three. Jarvis Landry was downgraded to DNP last Friday after getting in limited practices on the first two days of the week, and he ultimately missed week five with his ankle injury. Rookie Chris Olave was one of the first casualties of the updated concussion protocols last week and has yet to progress as of Wednesday. Deontay Hardy suffered a turf toe injury and is expected to miss significant time. The New Orleans wide receiver core for Week 6 could be anything from all starters go to a smattering of Marquez Calloway, Traquan Smith, and Keith Kirkwood. Last season, when the Saints were forced to play the majority of the season with Calloway and Smith as their primary receivers, they were 30th in the league in total pass rate at 51.47%, compared to a more balanced 57.23% this year which includes an absolutely bonkers 64.8% rush rate in their Week 5 victory, a game they played without Thomas and Jarvis, and one that saw Olave leave early with a concussion. With that in mind, we should be primarily looking inward to their roster as opposed to outward to the matchup to best determine how they are likeliest to attack here. One final note here, 
Last week, we saw the Saints play the majority of the game with Alvin Kamara and Taysom Hill as their primary skill position players, and they fed Kamara 29 running back opportunities, 23 rush attempts and 6 targets, and utilized Taysom Hill in most short-yarded situations. Alvin Kamara has reprised his borderline workhorse role and usage when healthy this season, parlaying snap rates of 62, 70, and 72% into running back opportunities of 13, 22, and 29. What has been the most startling is the reduced red zone role exhibited by Kamara thus far, with only 5 carries inside the 20 and 0 inside the 10 or 5 yard line. The 4 total rush attempts from inside the 5 for the Saints have been handled by Taysom Hill, Latavius Murray, lol, Mark Ingram, and Andy Dalton. Furthermore, Kamara has only 2 total targets inside the red zone through 3 healthy games. Even furthermore, Kamara hasn't scored multiple touchdowns in a game since Christmas Day of 2020. The pure rushing matchup yields a well above average 4.70 net adjusted line yards metric against a Bengals defense allowing just 3.96 yards per running back carry. Expect Mark Ingram to continue to operate as a pure change of pace back with relative unknowns surrounding when and where his usage is likeliest to come. Finally, it must be understood that Taysom Hill managed to rush for three touchdowns and throw for an additional score on only 30% of the team's offensive snaps last week, 23 snaps, which if not for Travis Kelsey scoring four times while accruing only 25 receiving yards, would likely go down as one of the greatest outlier performances of our lifetime. It must also be understood, the Saints were able to run 77 offensive plays last week against the Seahawks after averaging only 64 over the first four weeks of the season. As we talked about earlier, there are simply too many unknowns regarding the health of the three primary pass catchers for the Saints to truly break down their pass game through the lens of the likeliest scenario at least as things stand now with so little information. What we do know is that Marquez Callaway has a weak 14.5% targets per route run rate this season after posting a 20.3% rate last year, and Traycon Smith has a healthier 23.9% targets per route run rate this year after posting only 17.5% last year. For comparison, rookie Chris Olave's targets per route run value this year is 28.8%, which falls just below the elites of the game. All of that to say, targets are earned in this league, and the idea of one of these two emerging as viable fantasy options simply because the top three wide receivers might not play is FUBAR. The most pertinent thought process would be to have interest in any of the top three should one play and two miss, particularly considering the league average man coverage rates from Cincinnati. Lou Anarumo's 3-4 base, 4-2-5 hybrid zone defensive scheme creates pressure through a power front and unique blitz packages, which has generated pressure at a rate higher than their blitz rates. Good. The only true liability has been starting left corner Eli Apple, whose play has not backed up his off-the-field ranting over the previous three seasons. In all, Cincinnati's defense has allowed the second-fewest points per drive, holds the second-best drive success rate allowed, and has seeded the 10th fewest yards per drive in the league. All of that, and we haven't even mentioned the uncertainty at quarterback, with regular starter Jameis Winston returning to a limited practice on Wednesday. Likeliest game flow. We're likeliest to see the Saints struggle to move the football considering the difficult matchup and the litany of unknowns surrounding their skill position players. That leaves the Bengals as the likeliest to dictate the flow and environment, with the Saints likely to slow the game down to minimize the overall volume for each team. And, since we've seen the Bengals largely struggle to sustain efficiency on offense this year, that leaves the range of outcomes from the flow and environment relatively wide. 
We can, however, say with a good deal of confidence that this game doesn't have the pieces to truly blow up, which should serve to limit our interest to one-offs or correlated pairings. Basically, anything from a good old-fashioned slugfest to an environment that the Bengals control throughout should make up 80-90% to of the range of outcomes from this game. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Ravens at the Giants kick off Sunday, October 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 45. Game Overview by Hilo The Ravens wide receiver Rashad Bateman missed Week 5 with a foot injury and did not practice to start the week. Giants wide receiver Wandale Robinson was limited to start the week while Kadarius Toney and Kenny Galladay missed practice. The Ravens appear to be a more up-tempo offense if looking at their situation-neutral pace of play, but their 30th-ranked overall pace of play and 32nd-ranked first-half pace of play indicate a team whose offensive game plan remains consistent with what we have seen in the past. Slow pace of play, lower-than-average volume, and above-average efficiency. The Giants have ridden Saquon Barkley and an above-average defense, headed by Wink Martindale, to a 4-1 record. How Baltimore will try to win. The Ravens maintain a top six pass rate over expectation value, but we must realize that their expected pass rate, based on game flow and situational play calling, is only 56.3%, which ranks third lowest in the league. That helps explain a low 54.3% overall pass rate and only 29.8 pass attempts per game, each of which ranks in the bottom 10 in the league. The context of those metrics is important, meaning this is not suddenly a pass-heavy offense with bankable volume across the board. Furthering the somewhat unexciting outlook is an opponent facing only 30.8 pass attempts per game. The Giants' elevated average time of possession, 31 minutes and 7 seconds, and increased rush rates aid in that low number. But the reality is that the Giants remain largely untested, and their opponents to this point in the season have ranked 32nd, 30th, 26th, 22nd, and 17th in pass attempts per game. The Ravens rank 25th at 29.8. To me, that's simply schedule-induced variance more than it is a resounding indication of the effectiveness of the Giants' defense. All of that to say, we should expect the Ravens to largely be able to attack in their preferred manner, which includes elevated rush rates and a focused yet low-volume pass game. The return to health of running back J.K. Dobbins has not yet translated to a lion's share of the backfield workload, with snap rates through three healthy games of 43%, 50%, and 40%, leading to running back opportunity counts of 9, 17, and 8. Expect fullback Patrick Ricard to continue seeing elevated snap rates on a team that utilizes increased rates of heavy personnel alignments, primarily through the use of 21 personnel, Increased, as in off the charts, as the Ravens have run 21 personnel 40% or more in all but one game this year. Kenyon Drake should be on hand to serve as the change of pace, first back option to pair with Dobbins, while Justice Hill is working his way back from injury. The macro view here is any back should be treated as a low-volume yardage and touchdown back, considering the offense has fed only 17 total targets to the running back position this year, third fewest. The pure rushing matchup yields a well-above-average 4.64 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Giants defense, allowing a gaudy 5.1 yards per running back carry.
Mark Andrews is once again asserting dominance on the tight end position, responsible for a 98.7% route participation rate, a ridiculous 34.1% team target market share, a ludicrous 45% red zone team target market share, the most air yards at the position, 482, the greatest air yard share, 34.9%, and the most unrealized air yards at the position, 241. His 2.37 yards per route run value would rival the elite wide receivers, and he's playing tight end for Pete's sake. To say that Mark Andrews is the focal point of this offense seems like a gross understatement. As such, even though we can't ever project Lamar Jackson for more than 28 to 32 pass attempts, he has landed in this range every game this season, we can assume with a high degree of confidence that Andrews can still reach double-digit and high-value targets in most weeks. This week is no different. Things get a little dicey behind Andrews, particularly considering the status of lead wide receiver Rashad Bateman, who failed to practice on Wednesday after missing Week 5, typically not a good sign for a return to game action. Devin DuVernay and Demarcus Robinson led the way in snaps a week ago, with DuVernay exhibiting his best Debo light impression en route to seven targets and three carries. DuVernay has three offensive and one special teams touchdown through five games and is a Pro Bowl-level talent in the return game, so the upside is there should his role expand again without Bateman. Robinson is a body on the field, with a low 14.3% targets per route run value and low 56.4% route participation rate. He has yet to see more than four targets in a game this season. Tylen Wallace and James Proche split situational duties with 13 snaps and 18 snaps, respectively. Even with the injury to Bateman, everyone's favorite breakout rookie tight end, Isaiah, likely only saw 15 snaps. How New York Will Try to Win It makes sense why the Giants rank toward the bottom of the league in PROE, considering an inaccurate quarterback and pass-catching core headed by David Sills, Richie James, Darius Slayton, Marcus Johnson, and rookie tight end, Daniel Bellinger. Sterling Shepard was lost for the season. Kadarius Toney has played all of 35 offensive snaps as he battles injuries for the second consecutive season. Kenny Galladay seems checked out. And rookie Wandale Robinson has played only nine offensive snaps. Opportunity is here for the taking, primarily by Kadarius Toney and Wandale Robinson, if either can get and stay healthy. The metrics appear a bit misleading for the Giants, as does their 4-1 record, to be honest. Their first five opponents consisted of the Titans, Panthers, Cowboys, Bears, and Packers in a London game. Every single one of those opponents has scored fewer points per game through five weeks than the Giants have, 20.6, and the Giants ranked 19th in the league in that metric. As in, nobody has pushed the Giants to this point in the season, and their 21st DVOA against the run and 24th DVOA against the pass have largely not been tested to this point. Enter a game with the Ravens team ranked 4th in points per game at 27.6. Things might be a bit different for the Giants here. It also stands to reason that such a massive portion of the offense runs through the Giants' most dynamic skill position player, Saquon Barkley. His snap rate ranks 2nd at the position. His 85.1% team running back opportunity share also ranks 2nd at the position. His 97% total carries to date ranks 3rd at the position, and his 17.9% expected fantasy points per game ranks 4th at the position. The list goes on. His only total target rate appears underwhelming, 23, 9th amongst running backs, but then you realize his team target market share stands at a healthy 18.7%, second in the league at the position, and the Giants have attempted only 27.0 passes per game due to the opponents they've faced, fourth fewest in the league. As in, there is still room for further upside here. 
Furthermore, perennial run stopper Brandon Williams is no longer with Baltimore, and their starting nose tackle Michael Pierce is done for the season, leaving Broderick Washington to stand in that nose tackle. The pure rushing matchup yields a well-above-average 4.72 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Ravens defense, seeding 4.97 yards per running back carry this year. Expect backup running back Matt Breda to continue in a low-upside change-of-pace role. Of note here, Barkley logged his lowest snap rate of the season last week in London after leaving the game with a shoulder injury. He would eventually return and finish the game, but it is noteworthy considering his lofty involvement thus far. Man, oh man, this pass-catching core is laughably thin. Rookie David Sills, Richie James, Darius Slayton, rookie tight end Daniel Bellinger, practice squad wide receiver Marcus Johnson, and blocking tight ends Tanner Hudson and Chris Mayarek were the pass catchers to see the offensive snaps in Week 5. Talk about a dearth of variable options. The silver lining here is the presence of standout athletes Kadarius Toney and Wandale Robinson, who have each failed to play much as they fight through multiple injuries. Whoever of the two can make it back to the game action stands to immediately jump to the head of the pecking order through the air, or we could see a bunch of practice squad players rotate through some more. The Ravens have gotten a bit healthier on the back end of their defense, with the return to health of Marcus Peters to join Marlon Humphrey, but the team will continue to be without their starting slot corner Kyle Fuller, who is done for the season. Either way, it is fairly evident that the Giants will continue scheming Saquon Barkley unique ways to get the ball. Likeliest Game Flow It is likeliest we see the Giants continue to bias their attack towards the ground considering the composition of their team this year. What is different than in past years is that the team now has a competent coaching staff that is trying to score points with each possession and actively trying to win games. Basically, there is very little that indicates this is a 4-1 team when looking at their personnel and depth chart, meaning head coach Brian DeBowl should receive stark recognition for his efforts this year. The injuries to the Baltimore defense should facilitate this game plan, which could serve to keep the game closer for longer. The injuries to the offensive pieces for the Ravens should mean we continue to see an offense built on aerial efficiency through Mark Andrews and Devin DuVernay, assuming Rashad Bateman is held out again. The combined first-half pace of play contributes to those assertions, meaning this game is likelier to play close into the second half, providing an environment where each team can continue attacking in their preferred manner deeper into the game. By extension, that means we should expect lots of Mark Andrews and Saquon Barkley. The Buccaneers at the Steelers. Kickoff Sunday, October 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Bucks' offense has shown signs of life the last two weeks, and will try to match the show the Bills put on last week against these Steelers. The lack of pass rush for the Steelers without T.J. Watt will be a huge problem for them trying to slow down Tom Brady and company. The Steelers' offense is going to continue to struggle to form an identity if they keep falling behind in games. Pittsburgh has a tough decision to make in how to attack the Bucks, with a very difficult matchup for the passing game and a running game that may be the worst in the NFL. How Tampa Bay will try to win the Tampa Bay offense appears to be firing again, with their core offensive players healthy and starting to get in sync. A matchup with the Falcons funneled the Bucks heavily toward the pass, as Tom Brady threw the ball 52 times compared to only 20 non-kneel rushing plays. A 73% pass rate in a game that they never trailed and were ahead by multiple scores for about two-thirds of the game. 
This week, they face a Steelers defense that ranks dead last in the NFL in yards per carry allowed, having just given up 424 passing yards to Josh Allen and the Bills, with a whopping 348 of those yards coming in the first half. What that tells us is that the Bucks, favored by 8 points on the road in this matchup, should have the opportunity to attack the Steelers in whatever manner they choose. After a slow offensive start to the season for the Bucks, they hold the highest pass rate over expectation over the last two weeks since Mike Evans and Chris Godwin both returned to the lineup. While the volume has returned, the passing game didn't quite hit last week in the massive way that we occasionally saw it hit in previous years due to some bad touchdown luck and a couple of missed opportunities. They look good, but are still just a bit shy of the well-oiled machine that a fully functioning Bucks passing game usually operates as. This week, they should have a chance to fully resurrect. The Steelers' defense has become a shell of itself without T.J. Watt, as they currently have PFF's 23rd-graded pass rush despite an opening week performance where they dominated the Bengals, the only game in which Watt played. After seven sacks in that opening game, the Steelers have only three total sacks in the last four games. This will be a critical aspect of this game as the Bucks' offensive line has struggled against some better pass rushes this year, but if Tom Brady is given a clean pocket with his weapons at his disposal, then he is likely to pick up right where Josh Allen left off. The Bucks are a team that follows the spirit of their leader, Tom Brady, and is aggressive and goes for the kill when they smell blood. It is hard to imagine a scenario where they watch last week's film from the Steelers game against the Bills and don't come out firing and try to tear the lid off the game. The Bucks have thrown at a high rate only recently, but for the season they are playing at a torrid pace, ranking second in the NFL in seconds per snap and eighth in situation neutral pace of play. How Pittsburgh will try to win it is hard to get a grasp on the Pittsburgh approach with Kenny Pickett under center after just one week, as the offensive machine of the Bills jumped out to a huge first-half lead and dominated from start to finish last week. There was a lot left to be desired from the Steelers in last week's performance on both sides of the ball, but that has to be somewhat expected against a Bills team that ranks 7th in offensive DVOA and 2nd in defensive DVOA. Really, they don't have a weakness. Despite their best efforts and many off-season comments the last two years to the contrary, the Steelers really don't have much of a running game to speak of. Najee Harris was clearly overdrafted the day they picked him, and he isn't the type of back who is going to create a bunch of explosive plays or overcome poor schemes and blocking situations. The Steelers currently rank in the bottom 10 in the league in pretty much every rushing efficiency metric, and the Bucks' defense ranks third in the NFL in yards per carry allowed. That is a long way of saying, don't expect the Steelers' rushing attack to get on track here, either. With that knowledge of a low likelihood of success on the ground, the Steelers will have to make a choice in how they can try to win this game. The first option would be to accept that reality, but still try to run the ball often and keep the clock moving and shorten the game, hoping the Bucks' offense also falters and somehow things break their way in the second half. The second option would be to make a conscious decision to proactively attack the Bucks' number one ranked DVOA pass defense as they try to keep up with a team that is capable of putting up points in a hurry. Head coach Mike Tomlin does not strike me as the scared type that will play for the friendliest loss, and after watching his defense get shredded last week, he has to be aware that they are unlikely to shut down the Bucks in this spot 
and will need to put up points if they want to have any chance to win. The Steelers have the number 9 graded pass blocking unit by PFF and have several playmakers among their skilled players, so they should be able to provide adequate pass protection. And I would expect them to put the ball in the hands of rookie QB Kenny Pickett and try to give him chances to get the ball to his receivers in space and let them operate after the catch. Likeliest Game Flow This game is most likely to play out in a way similar to the games these teams each played last week, with the Bucks likely to build a lead through an aggressive game plan and a big schematic and personnel advantages. The best drive the Steelers had last week was their opening drive in which they marched 50 yards over 12 plays to set up a first quarter field goal that brought the score to 7-3 Bills. We often see poor offenses start the game strong like that as opening drives are usually scripted and attack specific things they saw on film that they can exploit. And perhaps we will see that again in this game. An early score or two from the Steelers would really provide the chance for this game to be pushed as the Bucks are going to come out aggressively, and the more points the Steelers can put up on the board, the longer the Bucks will be able to push the envelope. This is potentially a very fun game environment with aggressive mentalities for the primary decision makers on both sides of the ball, in Tom Brady and Mike Tomlin. The Panthers at the Rams kick off Sunday, October 16th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Get ready for a potential pillow fight between two offenses who currently rank in the bottom seven of the league in DVOA. Both teams are in the top ten in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, but both are also bottom five in average depth of target. The Rams have played at a surprisingly slow pace this season after riding an up-tempo offense to a Super Bowl last year. There is an unknown factor here with a coaching change in Carolina, and uncertainty regarding how the team will react to that and any potential changes in philosophy or approach. How Carolina will try to win After an impressively inept two-plus seasons running the show, Matt Rule was dismissed from his position as the Panthers' head coach after last week's ugly loss to the 49ers, in which the Panthers once again showed very little resistance as they were methodically taken apart by the 49ers, who won by 20-plus points and scored 37 points without doing anything exceptionally impressive. Taking over for Rule will be Steve Wilkes, who was previously a head coach for one season for the Cardinals during their season with Josh Rosen as the starting quarterback. The Panthers also fired their defensive coordinator, and Wilkes has a background in defense, so it would make sense that the most changes he makes will be on that side of the ball. On offense, Ben McAdoo is still running the show, so there is less likelihood of major changes, although Rule being out may change the dynamic some, and we may see some adjustments as the Panthers may have different goals in mind than when they started the season. Time to tank? Adding to the changes. Baker Mayfield will be out for some time after being injured in Week 5. Taking over will be P.J. Walker, who has had a couple of spot starts in the last couple of years, and actually won both games despite relatively modest stat lines. Walker may not set the world on fire himself, but he has shown the ability to get the ball to his playmakers and let them go to work. In Walker's first start, DJ Moore had a stat line of one rush for 21 yards and seven receptions for 127 yards on 11 targets, while Curtis Samuel also had eight receptions for 70 yards and a touchdown. Christian McCaffrey did not play in that game. 
In Walker's second start, CMC totaled 161 yards from scrimmage on 23 touches, and Walker spread the ball around to other receivers as the Panthers dominated the Cardinals. That was also the game Cam Newton returned to the Panthers and stole some of the scoring work. Looking to this week, the Panthers currently rank top 10 in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, but Baker Mayfield has the lowest average intended air yards of all quarterbacks through five weeks. The Rams have a run defense that is top five in most metrics and has personnel advantages all over, which may make it difficult for the Panthers to start by getting things going on the ground. As for the passing defense, the Rams play man coverage at the lowest rate in the league and, despite blitzing at the sixth highest rate in the NFL, rank 31st in hurry rate. The Rams also face the sixth lowest average depth of target among all defenses this season. This tells us that Walker should be able to have time to drop back and make good decisions about where to go with the ball, with openings most likely to be in short to intermediate areas of the field against their soft zone coverages. While I don't expect the Panthers to fully air it out with Walker, it is worth noting that on just six attempts this season, Walker's total intended air yards are 10% of what Mayfield had for the entire season. How Los Angeles will try to win Oh, how the mighty have fallen. After running the table in the playoffs on their way to a Super Bowl victory, the Rams continue to look like a shell of themselves five weeks through the season. The biggest issue continues to be their offensive line, which allowed five sacks last week and contributed to three Matthew Stafford turnovers. The Rams' offensive line ranks 31st in the league in PFF pass blocking grades and 27th in adjusted sack rate as measured by football outsiders. However, upon closer inspection, there may be some hope in the forecast. In the three losses for the Rams this season against the Cowboys, Bills, and 49ers, those defenses rank 1st, 2nd, and 7th in PFF pass rush grade. On the flip side, the two Rams victories this season have come against the Cardinals and Falcons, who rank 30th and 31st in PFF pass rush grade. The Panthers enter Week 6, ranked 21st in that same category, which sheds a ray of optimism that this offense can regain some traction at home against a team that is dealing with turmoil in the coaching ranks and at quarterback, the most important position in sports. While hard to quantify, there is an element of mojo in sports that is critical to highly successful teams and individuals. Anyone who watched the Rams last year and has seen them play this year can see a tangible difference in the energy and confidence the team has. The clearest statistical evidence we have of this change is the significant decrease in the pace of play to a plodding 25th ranked situation neutral pace of play. While the Rams have still thrown the ball at a high level, they have been reluctant to rely on anyone other than Cooper Cup and Tyler Higby thus far. In this matchup, the Rams not only need a win to get back to .500, but also need to hit a metaphorical home run offensively to get themselves back on track and get some mojo going as they try to turn things around. The Panthers do play a lot of zone and shell type coverages, but I would expect the Rams to be more aggressive throwing the ball downfield this week than they have been since facing the Falcons in Week 2. I would also expect the Rams to be able to establish a running game better than they have in the recent weeks, which should give Stafford more favorable passing situations on second and third downs than he has seen the last two weeks when the Cowboys and 49ers were teeing off on him in predictable long-yarded situations. Likeliest Game Flow 
this game seems to have a relatively large range of outcomes. Both offenses clearly have some major flaws and only a couple of true threats, while both defenses have some talent and run schemes that try to limit explosiveness. This makes a very ugly, low-scoring game very possible, which is reflected in the fact that this game has the lowest over-under on the main slate. However, the high pass rates, lack of pressure on the quarterback each defense has been getting, the desire by the Rams to get their offense looking more like last year, and unknown variables of change on the Panthers' side of the ball, all open up paths to this game opening up. If the Rams scored 30-plus points this week, I don't think many people on Monday would look back shocked. Also, the Panthers do have some players capable of springing big plays, which opens up the possibility of them pushing this game early or keeping some pressure on the Rams if they build a lead. The most likely outcome is a relatively modest game that closely resembles the implied point total of each team, but we must remain open to the possibility of change on both sides of the ball and the variance that opens up. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bills at the Chiefs kick off Sunday, October 16th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 54. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The game everyone is talking about. Both teams enter this week ranked top 10 in the league in offensive DVOA, yards per play, and points per game. These are the two top teams in the NFL in pass rate over expectation, PROE. The Buffalo defense has been elite, allowing three touchdowns only one time this season in a fluky performance by the Dolphins, where they only managed 212 total yards from scrimmage. The Bills' defense has given up 61 total points this season, with 14 of those points coming on touchdown drives that started inside the Bills' 10-yard line. The Chiefs' defense has given up 60 total points in the last two weeks. How Buffalo will try to win This is it for the Bills. After being eliminated from the playoffs the last two years by the Chiefs, this game carries as much significance for the Bills as any regular season game will all year. While this one game won't make or break the season, and a potential playoff matchup is obviously much more critical, the fact of the matter is that the Bills have built their team largely with getting past the Chiefs in mind. Their defense is built to create pressure without having to bring heavy blitzes. They rank 31st in the NFL in blitz rate, and this allows them to drop a lot of bodies into coverage and play shell and zone coverages. They rank 5th in the league in zone coverage rate. This combination has treated them well, as their defense has been dominant this year, but will now face arguably their toughest test of the year in the Chiefs. On the offensive side of the ball, Josh Allen and company have been humming and are coming off a dominant performance against the Steelers. They now face a Chiefs defense that has given up 60 points to the Bucks and Raiders the last two weeks, and the Bills scored 74 points against them in two meetings last year. The eruption of Gabe Davis is a nice reminder to opponents that they can't sell out to stop Stephon Diggs, something the Chiefs probably didn't need to be reminded of after Davis dropped eight receptions for 201 yards and four touchdowns against them in the playoffs last year. 
The Chiefs' defense is kind of in the middle of the pack in both blitz rate and zone coverage rate, meaning that they can be flexible depending on their opponent. The clearly best approach for the Chiefs this week will likely be to drop more players into coverage and force the Bills to work the ball underneath and dare them to run the ball against light boxes. Ironically, the same strategy that opponents have used against Mahomes in recent years. The Bills will likely accept this early in the game and take chunk plays on the ground to move the ball and hope to force the Chiefs to tighten things up. This will be an interesting chess match, as the Bills pass the ball at over a 70% rate on the season, but the Chiefs will do everything they can to encourage them to run the ball. All that being said, the Bills certainly have the talent to take their shots early in the game as well, and could take the approach that they want to set the tone and get a lead early in this game, allowing their number two PFF-graded pass rush to tee off on a predictable Kansas City offense if Buffalo can force them to play from behind. How Kansas City Will Try to Win The Chiefs keep writing Mahomes' magic and have had the good fortune of some opponents beating themselves this season as they enter Week 6 with a 4-1 record. The reality, however, is that this team could very easily be 2-3 if the Chargers and Raiders had not made some enormous and critical late-game mistakes. The Chiefs have certainly earned their wins, but there are some chinks in the armor and they can't expect to rely on the same good fortune against a well-oiled machine in the Bills who will enter Arrowhead Stadium on a mission on Sunday. A big part of the Chiefs' success has been their offense, which ranks first in the league in points per game. A big part of that success, however, has been driven by a red zone touchdown rate of just under 80%, which is third in the league while they rank ninth in the NFL in yards per play, a much more predictive stat than points scored. This is not to say the Chiefs have a poor offense, but the scoring results to date do not necessarily reflect the fact that the Chiefs' offense is not as good as in years past. This could be exposed this week by a Buffalo defense that was built to stop Mahomes and can bring pressure without blitzing. The Bills also rank ninth in the NFL in defensive red zone TD percentage while none of the teams the Chiefs have played so far rank in the top half of the league. What this means is that the Chiefs are likely going to struggle to move the ball in this matchup more than they have in any matchup so far this year, while also having a difficult time matching their to-date red zone scoring success when they are able to get into scoring position. The Chiefs will be forced to attack the underneath areas of the field, and, without Tyreek Hill to consistently stretch and threaten the Bills on the back end, may find those short areas more crowded than they have in the past matchups. Marquez Valdez-Scantling and McCole Hardman are okay, but not the type of guys who strike fear in a defense or consistently make plays. Those two, and Juju Smith-Schuster, have all struggled to create consistent separation on the perimeter, with none of the top three KC wide receivers scoring a touchdown yet this season. The Chiefs are unlikely to lean run-heavy, but may throw less often early in the game than what we've seen so far this year. Andy Reid and the Chiefs coaching staff are undoubtedly aware of everything I've discussed, and then some. The last thing they will want is to fall behind by multiple scores early in the game and let this Buffalo defense tee off on a Kansas City team that simply doesn't have the same matchup beaters they have had in past years. As a result, we could very likely see a more conservative approach from the Chiefs this week, at least early on. Likeliest Game Flow If you break this game into four areas, KC offense and defense, 
Buffalo offense, and defense. There are three areas that are near the top of the league and one that is in the middle of the league. The one outlier is the Kansas City defense, which has shown vulnerability in several spots this season. That weak spot and the fact that the Chiefs offense doesn't have the same explosiveness we've seen in the past now that they are without Tyreek Hill make it most likely that Buffalo controls this game. These are two of the better teams in the NFL, however, and this game could stay competitive early on as both teams will be aggressive without taking too many chances that put them at risk of losing control. A massive shootout like we saw in last year's playoffs is certainly possible, but it is far less likely than it was in that spot when the defenses were more beat up and the Chiefs had more firepower. If the Chiefs can build a lead, that would be the easiest way to this game blowing up as the Bills' offense is unlikely to fail for an entire game. If the Bills were the ones who build a lead, however, it would not be shocking to see them run it up a bit, as they did in last year's regular season meeting, which was a 38-20 Bills victory.